Leadership's incredibly lonely. Humility, being humble to say, look, I don't have all the answers. Can you help us work through this? If your whole team knows the challenges you're going through, guess what? It's no longer just on your shoulders. You can't pretend to have a purpose in a business because it shows up very quickly. It's got to be part of your DNA. Hello, and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do. Whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lane. Hello, and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners, and I'm joined today by Michael Finglan. Michael is the CEO of Vantage Performance, a specialist corporate turnaround firm that solves critical challenges in order to create stronger, more resilient businesses. Michael is also a columnist for the CEO magazine and contributed to other publications such as the AFR. He also appeared in the Sky Business as an expert on corporate turnaround and produced over 50 podcasts on corporate turnaround and transformation. Michael's mission is to raise awareness of the turnaround industry and how it can help people who need it. I hope you look forward to this conversation as much as I do. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Rather than just get involved in your CV, let's see how this plays out. So you did accountancy. And then you went straight into company turnarounds. How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, accounting, as you said, I did my uh, chartered accounting sort of post-uni degree, and it's just one of the tools of the trade now. But So I actually started after university, moved into insolvency for about four or five years, and very quickly sort of worked out that no matter how good a VA or receivership you do, there's still lots of carnage left behind. So there was no alternative back then. So uh, it wasn't until I went to the UK four or five years into insolvency that I, I stumbled across turnaround and and that was a natural move for me to move into turnaround consulting, which is working ahead of that space, you know, making sure companies don't collapse. And uh, that was back in 1999. So, But when you say it was a natural, there must be something in you that mm. was more looking at the way to help companies get out of the trouble we're in rather than yeah. insolvency where you're just in it, right? Well, it was sort of seeing the devastation all the financial devastation that happens when businesses collapse, but particularly the people impacts, the real social impacts, the job losses, the bankruptcies, even through to, you know, suicides and things like that. So that was the real visceral sort of moment, if you like, for me. As I said back then, there wasn't an alternative. It was either blue sky or insolvency, whereas turnaround carves out that middle space to get in there and work with businesses as they're starting to move towards, you know, severe financial distress get in there, restructure them and get them back on track. So that when I went to the UK back in, in the late 90s with Ernst & Young and you know, they had a dedicated turnaround team of you know, 15 people that physically sat across the river and uh, they were separate from the insolvency team. So that, for me, that was a, a natural calling. Great, there's now a solution to helping turn businesses around and get in there before they might otherwise hit the wall. Fantastic. So now you've been running Vantage Performance for 15 years. Mm. Tell us how you've grown the company. It's been an interesting challenge because not only have we been trying to grow the firm nationally, but we're also in an industry that's still 
and we were creating a new industry as well. So we were the first or second, you know, dedicated firm to set up, you know, 15, 16 years ago. So it's been a challenge because you've been, you know, the industry sort of been growing at the same time. So we've had a different set of challenges, if you like, than just growing a firm. But a lot of advocacy, there's still a lot of directors out there who haven't heard of turnaround. They haven't heard of that middle ground, you know, between guy and insolvency. So a lot of advocacy work over the years, lots of podcasts, lots of bank presentations and and, and, and lots of education. Every chance I get, lots of education, just yeah. to show them because the one thing that we get told every time by by directors is I didn't even know this service existed if only I'd mentioned six months ago. If only statement, right? <laughs> yes. So which shows that they're still not aware that, that right. the solution exists. So, so but, but even in saying that, Michael, did they search though? Because we don't know what to okay, but you and I have come across leaders where, you know, the old adage is lonely at the top. I mean, how much do they get out of their own way to say there's always a way, as, as your sign says there? How much do they say, you know, what is an alternative? And then they go searching. Yeah, I mean, the occasional director group or board do search. And if they've got good advisors around them, the advisors all know about turnaround. Right. Their legal advisors, accounting advisors, specialist advisors such as yourself, they're aware of it and they can. They can introduce you know, a specialist turnaround firm to a board or, a, or an entrepreneur. But if they don't even know this industry exists, even if they are looking for it, they don't know what to look for because they've never heard of it. But in saying that, it's come a long way in the last 15 years. There's certainly a much greater awareness now, but there's still lots of, lots of awareness and lots of education yet to be done. So the moment they do get into some sort of financial stress, they know exactly where to go and they don't talk to an insolvency firm. And they talk to a turnaround advisor, a specialist restructuring advisor first. Now, the interesting thing is probably the first person they go to is their trusted advisor, which could be an accountant, right? Mm-hmm. So, therefore, it's the bent of the accountant of who is going to introduce them to that insolvency or the turnaround, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look, the accounting fraternity should be the first. And often they do talk to their accountant, but even a lot of accountants are not aware of turnaround as a specialist industry and they don't understand what's involved in a turnaround. They think a cash flow is a turnaround plan, whereas you and I both know that's not. So they actually don't have the core skills to actually go in there and and work out what are those one to two big changes, how to build a coalition of stakeholders, raise the equity, the debt that's needed, do all the negotiations that's needed. So it's, it's a highly specialised area. Even the accounting fraternity don't always, they're either not close enough to their client to really have that relationship or they're just not aware of turnaround either and they'll refer them to an insolvency firm. Right. Or they think they can do it. They want to keep it in-house, right? Sure. Because they don't know what's involved, they will get in there and often make it worse because you've now wasted three months or six months and that's really valuable time to... Right. How many accountancy firms that we see now are rebadging themselves as business advisors, right? That's right. Uh, cool. Okay, so how many people in your company now? Uh, we've got 20 now. Uh, all right. We just launched our Sydney Sydney office. We've got Brisbane, Sydney and Perth. Well done to you. Well done. And is there any particular industry or sector that you seem to get more work in? In terms of our client base? Yeah. The economy throws up the usual industries every year, manufacturing, engineering, mining, mining services, retail. You know, there's going to be a lot more in the healthcare space. Over the years, for sure, particularly aged care, there's some real structural issues there. But generally speaking, the economy throws up the usual, the usual sort of six or eight key, key industries every year. 
because they're traditionally they're working on thin margins to start with. Yeah, and it's also which industries are being disrupted by overseas events such as offshoring and things like that. But interestingly, and this is a stat that stayed very static all the way through my career, is roughly one third of our clients are actually growing at a 30, 40% clip. And Jim Collins, actually the famous business yep. author, would do great, as you know, one of his famous books, actually did a survey not too long ago and worked out that in the US, which is a proxy, 50% of all businesses that had their record year of growth collapsed the next year. Because they've taken their eye off the fundamentals. Off the fundamentals. And to the stat that for us it's stayed incredibly static all over the years is 30% of our clients have been growing like that. Yeah. Uh, and then they come to us the year later, which is very similar to the Jim Collins analysis. So because they, they overtrade their people, their systems, their capital structures, and very quickly they can get into a, a cash crunch. And, and if you don't arrest it very quickly, then it becomes a more systemic issue because they're now chasing their tail, product quality drops, sales returns start picking up, which impacts on cash flow, and then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So right. and, businesses can, can hit the wall just as, just as much as uh, correct. And I think, and please educate me, and I think that fast growing, in some aspect, they've taken on one or two clients that usually they wouldn't be able to take on, right? And to take them on, they've had to change their governance model from a financial perspective, and then things go south. Got it. <laughs> That's right. So things go south with these big clients and, and puts a stress on the rest of their business. Yeah, look, one of the business principles, if you like, that has stood the test of time is never let your you know one customer become more than 25% of your, your revenue base. And, and we see that happen a lot in mining particularly or if you're a key supplier to the supermarket chains or big box stores, there's all of a sudden, you know, one customer, and I understand why they get excited by that trap because their revenue could double or triple overnight. They jag this massive contract and all of a sudden you're now trapped because you've, you've raised a lot of debt to build the infrastructure to supply this big new contract and guess what? Your customer knows that too. So then they start turning the screws in terms of pricing and terms and, and now you're trapped because if you leave them, you can't afford to pay the debt that you've just taken on. So that's a really important thing to, to be mindful of is never let one, one client become more than, more than a quarter of your book. And you can understand from a psychology perspective, they've got one client, they only have to focus on one client, there's a lot of certainty around it, you don't have to go chase others. So let's just keep the machine going, but then, yeah, you're right. You're Very fine. few businesses ever make that work in the long term. That's right. And actually, a, speaking of Jim Collins. Anchor. It becomes an anchor, you know, around your neck. Yeah. Speaking of Jim Collins, I saw him recently again, and mm. he said, of all the research he's done and all the tools and strategies he talks about, he still comes back to the flywheel. Yeah. <laughs> and not many people understand that concept of the flywheel. Yeah. And when they get it right, then it's just amazing what happens, right? So you've learnt about leadership in your own organisation and mm. dare say leadership in all the other organisations that you've helped, right? What's been the biggest aha moment for you, Michael? The biggest aha moment yeah. is to bring your team with you and not be afraid to let them know about what's going on. You know, we had our own sort of high growth challenges in, in the early years and and the one thing, it's actually quite a cathartic process, is, is if your whole team knows the challenges you're going through, guess what? It's no longer just on your shoulders. But I think that being, when it comes to one of the, the core principles of really effective leaders is, is humility. Being humble to say, look, I don't have all the answers. Can you 
can you uh, can you help help us work through this? So I think that that's one of the big moments that I wasn't always like that, but certainly am now. It's it's a much easier way to manage a business as well. Because part of that transparency, Michael, is when you're sharing the bad news, you're concerned about how they're going to react and are they going to dig in or are they going to get off, right? So yeah, I get it. Got another half a dozen, dozen, whatever size business you've got. If you've got your entire supervisor management team all thinking about solutions to these challenges you've got, guess what? It's just a much easier place to live. That's right. It takes a while to learn that, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And it takes trust and you need to you need to have a good culture already in the business and that's another we've certainly got a, an amazing culture now and have had for many many years but certainly in those early years of growing a business you're still working out what your culture is so uh, you, yeah. you do need to have a, a good solid culture to be able to have the trust to share that because when we're talking about culture and again think about all the other clients you've helped as well right what's the most important factors that you need to focus on to cultivate that company culture the number one thing, and actually Google did this multi-year study many, many years ago, spent millions of dollars on it. And the number one thing, there's five critical things, but number one thing that they worked out was the best indicator of high-performance teams and a really strong culture is what they called psychological safety. Mm. And that is engendering a, a culture where people are free to speak up, whether you're in a, a brainstorming session or, or just generally day-to-day operations, where they're not afraid that if they speak up, someone's going to shout over them or they're going to make a joke about them and tell them they're stupid or something. So in engendering that culture where people are, are open, they're happy to speak up, whether it's a good idea or not, they're celebrated for actually having the courage to speak up. So really fostering that, that sense of open communication. And what they found, you know, they, and they put a whole bunch of different combinations of people together, you know, A players, B players, extroverts, introverts, combinations, you name it. And actually in their world, it was the B team that were actually what they circled B team was the high-performing team. And what they worked out was before the meetings would start, there'd be lots of chatter. Right. right? Just for five minutes beforehand because they were comfortable to just sort of – and that was a key point of difference between those teams that were high-performance teams and had a really strong culture versus others. So that's psychological safety, ensuring that – and this is, goes for all leadership teams, but really ensuring that you have a really strong – articulated why or purpose in your business, that's number one. The flywheel and hedgehog and all those other principles that Jim Collins talks about, that's through Simon Sinek and, and a lot of other leading authors all talk around the same thing around that space. You've got to have a really powerful why and that'll do most of the heavy lifting in terms of the culture because you you attract the right people to the business that are really passionate about the core purpose that you've got as a firm. So they are going to engender that through the firm and that becomes the bedrock of the culture. So having a really powerful why, making sure that their work is meaningful. We've talked about psychological safety, making sure they've got the right tools to do their job. And as fundamental as have they got the right roles and responsibilities, is that really clear? That were the big things that Google worked out many, many years ago, and we've always adopted those, particularly along the way. But it's all about open communication, regularly conducting formal and informal you know, employee surveys. We, we use the Net Promoter Score here and have done for many, many years, and we always use this for clients as well, for customers and, and employees. You just get great feedback and it's a really good benchmark. It never changes. And uh, we often ask those five questions in that survey around rate us out of one to five around psychological safety. Do you know what your roles and responsibilities are? As a way of reinforcing that, that's what we want to know, and you tell us if we're delivering that. So in the companies that you've helped turn around, you're looking through those filters, mm. but you also... As a leader, do you need to be self-aware of your values as well? 
and the behaviors aligned to those values, which is what you're going to be walking around your company every day thinking about and then filtering other people against that. Absolutely. I mean, what really, really powerful, high-functioning businesses know and do and practice is they treat values more than just words on a, on a canvas, right? It's ingrained into everything they do. Their values, their business principles, their leadership principles, their core beliefs, culture statements, everything, it's all intertwined. And so it's not just on the website or on the wall. They actually look for ways to celebrate how it's showing up in the workplace. So if someone, you know, empathy is one of our core three principles or core three values. So we encourage all of our workforce that if they see one of our fellow staff members showing empathy with a client or a creditor of a client or a, whatever it might be, then celebrate that, you know, announce it at our weekly huddle, you know, take them out to lunch, say thank you. So it's not just having words on a page. You've actually got to look at ways to celebrate it because then it gets ingrained. Reward the behaviour you want, right? Exactly right. So you have to be aware of it, but you have to make, as a leader, you have to make sure that it's everywhere. You know, it's it's on, it's all around the place. You celebrate it. It's in your onboarding pack. You know, you talk about it regularly at various events. Totally agree with you. It's your DNA. You live and breathe it, right? And as a leader and then your leadership group, you know, it's, it's, people are always looking at you. They're always saying, how congruent, how consistent are you on these values? And soon you trip up, they're, they're noticing. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> it. And that's, that's a good thing, right? Because you want that accountability back and developing that culture of discipline to be these are the principles we want to run the business by, these are the values and our culture statement. So having the discipline and trying to instill that discipline in the team, and part of that is accountability. Yeah. Is giving them the licence to hold you accountable takes uh, a bit of faith. But uh, So let's keep talking about the three core leadership traits, right, that I want you to bring to life because you just mentioned accountability. And I know myself in the 12 years that we've been engaging with companies, it fascinates me, Michael, that at home we'll hold our kids accountable. Yeah, yeah. We've crossed the threshold of a business and suddenly we have problems in that area. Is, that, is this what you found? Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, there's been surveys done forever that you know, what are the, what's the one or two key things that CEOs wish their organisations had more of? It's accountability and discipline. Yeah. So developing those you know, disciplines of or culture of discipline and a culture of accountability, I mean, they go hand in hand, are really critical. And if you don't have those as a leader, well, you're never going to instill them in the, in the organisation. So it's something that we always look for when we're recruiting or when we're evaluating a management team because to have the discipline to stick to the new plan we've come up with, the 100-day plan, the payment plans we put in place with creditors, all those things, we need our clients' management team to be focused and disciplined and we're always holding them accountable. Let's just say the trick is, are we holding ourselves accountable as well? So those two traits are absolutely critical, whether you're in a startup mode, high growth, mature, distressed, whatever it might be, you can't get away. You need that discipline. You still maintain that flexibility because sometimes the plans change and invariably they do. But again, it's a discipline to, to be staying focused on the process, which will alert you to the fact that we need to pivot and change. So discipline and accountability are two critical, critical uh, traits. So what are the other traits, Michael, that come to uh, mind? I think a big one for me is humility. So, and again, there's been numpteen studies done around this, is, is those really highly effective leaders, they know that it is much better to give all the credit to 
you know, other people in the team, then take the credit on yourself. And rarely it's the, it's correct as well, right? So humility is, you know, really celebrating the individuals in your team and not taking the credit for yourself when things are going well. And particularly when things aren't going well, you've got to take responsibility for that. So responsibility is a key part of it. So all the really good leaders are consistently praising their team and praising others and don't need the praise themselves. Even if it's warranted, they don't look for it and they don't need it and they're almost embarrassed when they get it. Want to get weekly industry insights, experiences, leadership and sales tips? Sign up now to receive our newsletter at sgpartners.com.au. Do you think it's part of the challenge that we have as a psyche of, of leaders that we struggle praising people? It's easier to give them negative feedback than it is to positive feedback? Yeah, potentially. I think you, it also comes to, I think for many, for, you know, probably since the 80s and 90s, there was a big sort of push that extroverts made the best leaders. Well, they've actually worked out often it's introverts that are the best leaders. And part of the reason for that is introverts aren't looking for praise. They're not, you know, so, and at the end of the day, they've also worked out that there is no one, because if you're in a real growth phase and it's a real sales orientated business, you need that real gregarious, outgoing person sometimes to take, to be the leader for that next phase of the business. But they may not be the right leader in, in five years' time or 10 years' time. So there is no one hard and fast rule as what, what is the best leader. But I think because you've found now over the last 10 years or so, a lot more introverts have been shown to be really, really fantastic leaders. They're showing those other traits, whereas extroverts can, can just by their nature, are looking for that constant sort of reassurance and, and feedback because it's just the way they're wired. But, um, so, so you mentioned a really interesting point is, again, self-awareness is a huge trait for me mm-hmm. uh, for leadership. The self-awareness to know that as a founder of the business, yep. I'm not going to be the next one to take to the next level mm-hmm. or as the governance board or whatever you want to call it, say actually we need a different CEO or a different leader to take us to the next level. And I think that's a big challenge for companies as they grow, to get out of their own way. Yeah, and that's where they need the support of their advisors around them to, because, you know, they're in the weeds. They won't always know. So they need that nudge. You know, we talk a lot about behavioural economics and nudge theory, which is the science of nudging people to do actually what's in their best interest. And, uh, you know, it's a fairness way into neuromarketing as well but they need that nudge to say hey are you the right person for the next evolution of this business and in a turnaround often you need to bring in someone who may be a and that turnaround ceo or a turnaround gm to be that leader for the next 12 18 months and make those really hard decisions and then they move on and then you bring in a traditional or bring back in a, a traditional bring back in now that would worry you bring back in <laughs> well if it's a family business right so they don't have the skills typically so you might bring in a specialist interim ceo that is happy to take all the flack and make all those hard decisions but they're not always the right leader to continue on because unfortunately you do have to upset some people when you're doing a turnaround because not everyone you know gets what they want so that often protects you know the family from that or, or the business from that and also they just know how to manage a business through a crisis period quicker than the existing leadership team sometimes or sometimes just coming in and riding shotgun with them yes. just to act as that sounding board to say, well, in this case, this is what I do or I'll come along with you to those key 
key meetings to handle those negotiations. The last sort of trait, you know, there's other traits there, but the, the last big one for me is authenticity. And that comes back to your why. You can't pretend to have a purpose in a business because it shows up very quickly. You've got to, it's got to be part of your DNA, which for me, you know, I worked in insolvency and saw that the system was broken. It might be the system is broken. There's got to be a better way to avoid all that carnage. So it was a natural evolution for me to fall into, as you said before, turnaround because that was already in my DNA. I didn't know it at the time, but clearly it was there. And then, you know, Vantage came out off the back of that because we just, I just wanted to do that full time. And then you attract people that believe in what you believe, which is what Simon Sinek always talks about. So if, if you're not authentic, then people see through it very quickly. So I think for me, you know, if you want to build a coalition of employees and other stakeholders around your business and in, in an industry where we're trying to really promote the awareness and grow turnaround because it's going to save a lot more, more businesses and a lot more jobs, if you're not authentic, you're not going to be able to build that momentum. So, And when we go into clients, whether they're a high-growth client or a turnaround client, we're always looking for those traits because we know we, we can't build the employee momentum around the leaders. They're going to need to do that. We're going to get a lot of stuff out of their way. We're going to deal with creditors and cash flow and banks and, and give them that pathway so they can then you know, execute the new plan. We need to know, has the existing leadership team got those traits there that they just haven't been able to bring to the bear because they're, they're just so stressed out managing all the, all the crises? So, so we're looking for those and sometimes we do need to bring some people in just to bolster the team or there might be a gap in the team so they can do that heavy lifting going forward. I hear you. I totally agree. So when we look at strategy, because part of what you do for companies is to review their strategy and maybe create a strategy because they didn't have one, what are the key activities needed to consistently apply to ensure people are aligned to the strategy? First of all, I'd say, have we got the right strategy in place first? And one of our, it's a core part of our model and why we've been so successful is, is when we're coming in to look at a situation or if you're an existing business you know, out there and, and you're looking at have we got the right strategies, is typically there needs to be one to two big changes in the strategy when it comes to turnarounds. So we're always looking for that. So in terms of how do we ensure they stay focused on the plan, we've got to make sure we've got the right strategy first because if they don't believe in it, they're not going to stay on the path. So have we got the right strategy in place? In the turnaround context, always look for those one to two big changes in the strategy. And then there needs to be a sense of urgency. So have you created as a leadership team or as a CEO enough sense of urgency to make sure people act with urgency and comes back to discipline and accountability and all those things. But creating that sense of urgency is critical once we're all convinced we've got the right plan. But building that sort of guiding team and very quickly, whether you're an existing management team or you're coming in like we do, is you have to identify very quickly, are there any detractors in the team? And that's why I guess said before, you've got to build that. Have we, have we got alignment around the plan first and then have we got the right team to execute that plan? So I think they're critical things to really, really be clear about. And you might have to make some tough decisions. Sometimes it might be bolstering that team, it might be replacing someone in that team or removing them from the business because if they're stuck in their ways, and you and I have all seen this over the years, if they're stuck in their ways, even if you've got the world's best turnaround plan or new growth strategic plan, whatever it might be, if they're not willing to change, then they're going to keep throwing grenades until they cause enough damage that it derails the plan. So always look for those detractors to see if, one, if they're there, and if they are, you need to try and get them on the plan or, or, or get them out of, the, out of the picture. 
And I suppose, Michael, also the plan, the strategy and the plan is a living and breathing document as well. And you just don't create it and put it on the bookshelf. It constantly needs to be reviewed. Yeah. Um, and one of our big things, you know, we jump into every business we come into is your strap plan should be, whether it's a growth plan or a turnaround plan, whatever, one page. And the key to that is if you can get it onto a, a one page, that means you've got it. You've distilled it. If you can communicate your plan one page to anyone that doesn't even know the business, then, then you've nailed it. So but the, the other key lesson for leadership teams too is whatever state of business life cycle you're in, your strap plan, as you said before, is a living, breathing document. It's not something you look at once a year. You should be looking at it at each board meeting or at least a, a quarter, every quarter, just to see if we've got the right initiatives in the right order. Do we need to sort of change it slightly? But it should be a document that you pick up and put down all the time. I always have it on my wall at work. It's on my iPad and I'm travelling, so I can just refer to it, you know, and then you have your 100-day plan behind that, obviously, with all the initiatives that you're working on that for the next quarter. But it should be that sort of document that you pick up and put down and pick up and put down, not just look at and create once a year at your uh, at your annual offsite if you actually have one. Yeah. I've actually been utilising an application from an Australian company called StratApp that keeps that strategy, the goals, the objectives and the communication alive. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. All right, so... You're in a great position to answer this. What is the number one lesson learned from people's failures? As a CEO? Yeah, as a leader, yeah. Not putting your hand up early enough for help. Cool. It comes back to that having that confidence in yourself or the confidence in your team and your advisors around you, not being afraid to put your hand up for help. Because it's a challenge because every, as CEOs, we, we think, and I'll talk for my clients as well, we think that we're meant to know all the answers. But that's crazy. Right, yeah. you know, and until you're prepared to actually say, "Look, I don't have all the answers," it's a much easier place to live, as I said before, because then you galvanise your senior leadership team or other people around you to say, "Look," and they don't all think you have. Your team doesn't expect you to have all the answers. That's the crazy thing. It's all self-inflicted. So they probably know way before. Yeah. And so whether you're in high growth, you're in a turnaround mode, or you're growing your own consulting firm, is put your hand up ask for help, you're not expected to have all the answers. Yeah. And over these 15 years, your company has been assisting other companies, Michael, has there been a time period on average mm. that they should have done it in a six-month or a three-month or a 12-month and waited that period too long to say, hey, I don't have all the answers, I need help? Yeah, unfortunately, and it's kind of, it comes back to human nature. Most directors always wait too long. And well, What's too long, though? Oh, it could be as little as three weeks. So right. three I mean, it depends on what, what issue they're facing. But generally speaking, it's probably six to 12 months too long before. There's always some sort of financial crisis that puts the rocket under them, so to speak. And it comes back to that nudge theory I was talking about. It's always their banker, their lawyer, their accountant typically who are in a position to be able to nudge, end up nudging. But it's always it's always later than it should be. And most vast majority of all... all businesses in crisis can be turned around. It's just harder, you know, if they wait too long because you've got less options and, uh, and the stress period is, is a bit more intense. But So it's, it's the ability to get out of your own way and say, hey, I've got a problem, mm. right? And then who do you share that problem with? It's getting out of this embarrassment cycle that we're in to say, you know what, there are some people I can talk to just upon how I'm feeling, right? Yeah. And just sometimes when you talk to someone else, it's going, you're hearing yourself and going, oh, I get it. 
the three big, and we've done this survey for eons, the three big barriers as to why directors don't seek help early enough is overconfidence. They genuinely believe they can solve the crisis themselves. And I get it because they, they come from an entrepreneurial background. They've been through a few scraps themselves and got through it in the past. So that's that's the number one biggest obstacle, pride or ego, and then denial. They're, they're the three big ones. Right. And that's why, you know, the, the pride and the denial is why they need that nudge. They need their banker, their lawyer, their accountant to be constantly thinking who, who out there needs a nudge and just to even just to speak to someone as a standing board just to say look this is what i'm dealing with where do i go what are some potential ideas or options just as you're brainstorming and that, that overconfidence piece often and all three of them play out the same way is they end up waiting too long because they can't admit they need help or it's just too scary because admitting help means i've got to now confront what's ahead of me or their heads in the sand from a denial point of view and being able to take feedback as well. Yeah, yeah. And that comes back to that humility piece before. Number one, that really effective leaders are, are humble, not afraid to ask for help, and they know they're not expected to have all the answers and they share that burden with their team and their, and their advisor group. Yeah, certainly. So from a change management or transformation programs perspective, Michael, what are the more, most important things you need to focus on when doing change management or transformation? Number one, create a sense of urgency. If it's not there already, because if, if there isn't a real sense of urgency, people just won't work with, this, with the intensity that you need. So create a sense of urgency is number one, building that sort of guiding team, making sure you've got the right team around you is the second and most critical right. step in that process. And then that 100-day plan and focus and identifying particularly some quick wins. Right. When you've got a big transformation plan on, on, you know, that sense of urgency, have I got the right team or build that guiding coalition, create some quick wins. So people, everyone loves some quick feedback. And if the team has a couple of quick wins, even if they're not material, but quick few quick celebrations and then uh, that builds more momentum and then, then you're on your way. So what are the other important factors need to be considered to be a great leader when transforming your organisation? Because you shared a lot with us today, right? So is there anything else from all your experience in your own company or all these other companies that you've engaged with to say, if I could help anyone out there, mm. might be in that three, six or 12 months and everything you've shared, yeah. what's that one other thing? I'm going to say, because we've talked enough about, well, not enough, but we've certainly covered a lot of, management practices and traits, but a tool, I'm going to throw out a tool which actually helps cut through all those. And as simple as it is, it's a 13-week cash flow. Because just, and it's amazing how many businesses don't have that in place from listed companies all the way down. Because a rolling 13-week cash flow is that nudge. It'll tell you you've got some issues coming. And even if businesses have a cash flow, it'll be a two-week cash flow or four-week, that's not enough. It needs to be at least 100 days, which is a full business cycle. And just having the discipline to put that in place will confront you with the brutal facts, as Jim Collins talks about. You've got to be, you have to confront the brutal facts. And nothing does that more than a 30-minute cash flow that says, you've got a looming issue here, you need to act now. And once you're presented with that, then you have to act. Yeah. So, again, it's just the discipline we talked about. Make sure you've got one of the most critical tools that every business should have in place, whether you're growing at 30% or declining. Just having that in place and then be prepared to act upon that. So... For business to grow, they must have problems, mm -hmm. right? So it's about where the red flags are going to come up. How do you know, mm -hmm. right? Where are you looking for them? So if you've got a tool that can do that, great. 
it's also leaning in to say, I know there's going to be problems and that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And if I can anticipate them, it's even better. How many world-class businesses have had near-death experiences? Apple, Tesla's had two or three of them. SpaceX, they were down to their last group of spare parts when they they got their first launch away. You know, you look back now and they think, oh, they must have always been successful. No, they weren't. But most GM, Ford, they've all gone through restructurings. I can't think of a company in the world, uh, maybe Amazon, and it'll have, it's, it'll have its day, but because things change, you know, industries get restructured, but extremely rare for highly successful businesses not to have some bumps along the way. It's normal. Yes. The key to it is having that, you know, there's one or two big changes, the new strap plan, the sense of urgency, have the right team around you, the right advisors around you, put your hand up for help early. So others can help you solve that challenge. So you actually get through it much, you know, without as much distress and stress as you otherwise will. Cool. Michael, much appreciated. Now, give yourself a plug, right? So if you're out there in the world and someone was going through a three, six or 12 months, why would they reach out to you? One thing that is particularly true in turnaround is, is you only get, generally speaking, you only get one chance to turn your business around if, you, if you're in that sort of crisis. So you want to make sure you, you've chosen the right firm. I mean, we're really proud of the fact that we've saved 19,000 jobs. Our big big goal is to save 30,000 jobs by 2025. So we're, we're getting getting closer and closer, but you know, we've got an 85% success rate, which is an industry-leading turnaround success rate. Uh, we've won 14 awards as well, which is the most in the industry as a turnaround firm. And we've got a 100% success rate in securing more time and support from financiers for our clients. So all that does is it, it buys you a significant amount of time so you can then work out what the plan is, attract the right capital we need, execute that plan in, a, in, a, in an environment which is not as stressful as it otherwise will be. So there's my plug there, the three three I'm big ones for us. But um, for us, it's all about saving jobs. As we're up to 19,000. Hopefully we'll get there much sooner than 2025 and then we'll go again and, and look at the next big target. So it sounds like there's a real strong human element there. Yeah, it is. And that, that's the foundation of our why is saving jobs, Obviously, you have to save companies to save the jobs, but it's avoiding all of those personal social issues that, that happen on the back of that. And, you know, we're going through a crazy period right now. There's going to be a lot of economic dislocation as well, as well as the current social dislocation, and uh, which is why we need, you know, more and more people to talk about and create the awareness of turnaround, which is, you've been a great advocate over the years, just to let directors know that there is that yes. service out there that they don't have to wait until until it's an insolvency, they can actually uh, bring on board a, a, an individual or a firm, whoever it might be, to actually help them through that really critical phase and then they're back to a back to a growth course. Well, Michael, thank you very much. Really appreciate this time. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening.